That's Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast in Whale. Well, it could be. Hello, I'm Richard Hollingham, and we're heading underwater for some sounds of the sea. Also, what life on a small rock can tell us about climate change. And if you look to them under the microscope, as we're about to do, you can see that these are fighting each other, and, and we're looking at an, an ancient battleground. This week, I've come to the University of Bristol to meet Steve Simpson, a marine biologist who studies the sounds fish listen to and make. Now, Steve, you better explain. We originally got interested in particularly the sounds that fish listen to in trying to understand how fish that spend the first few weeks of their life away from coral reef environments that they would then spend the rest of their life living on could ever find those coral reefs when they're ready to come back and set up home. We started initially by taking light traps, which are a very standard trap used by particularly uh, tropical fisheries uh, managers to catch larval coral reef fish at the age that they're returning to reefs. Took a simple trap and then took a recording of a coral reef that we used a hydrophone to make and we played that recording back through an underwater speaker. It was actually a speaker that's normally sold to rock stars to put in their swimming pools so they can listen to their latest tracks as they swim length. And the traps that were playing back the sounds of coral reefs caught twice as many larvae in a whole suite of families as those that were fishing silent. That's a really healthy coral reef in the Philippines. It's a marine protected area. It's very well protected from fishing. First of all, there's a background crackle. It sounds almost like the sound of heavy rain on the pavement. Or bacon in a, or, in a or pan. Or frying bacon. That was, that was how it was first described by mariners. That's the sound of snapping shrimp. They produce a, a micro bubble in their claw that they fire forwards. The bubble implodes when it hits the water, and that creates a very loud snap. Now, the other sound in there was almost a, a croaking sound. That's right. So uh, there's then a whole suite of diverse sounds that fish have learnt to make. So they can be croaking sounds, chirping noises that sound almost frog-like, and they do that to communicate with each other, perhaps to assess whether they're a, a suitable mate or for territorial behaviour. The logical next step for our work was to take our recordings of coral reefs and start to look at what information that recording contained. So the first study that we did then was to split the recording into the higher frequency noise, that is the crackling snapping shrimp, and the lower frequency noise that was the fish popping and chirping. What we found was that larval fish were actually attracted to the higher frequency crackling noises. So we think that might be a cue that brings them into shallow water environments. And when we play the sounds on artificial reefs, the lower frequency noises are then used by the juvenile and adult fish that move around at night trying to find habitat. Um, we've actually just got a paper out this week which shows that when you take recordings from different types of habitat, um, so we take recordings from an outer barrier, we take recordings from an inner lagoon, and we play that next to artificial reefs, the fish that you would find on the lagoon arrive onto that artificial reef, the fish that you would find on the outer reef, you then find settling onto reefs playing those noises. So the fact that fish are able to tell different habitats apart from the noise has got us very interested in what the soundscape of a coral reef environment really is like. 
why is this important? It's interesting, but why is it important? The reason that I got interested in it was actually from a much more applied perspective in that I was interested in coral reef fisheries, particularly in uh, fisheries in developing world situations where there is very limited information on what is being caught. Um, It's a multi-species fishery. It's normally artisanal, so the fish are landed on the beach. So to try and actually model or manage populations of fish is very difficult if you've got no idea how the actual whole life cycle works. Now, your latest research comes back to those, those crustaceans, the, the snapping sound that, that we were hearing at the beginning. So there are some crustaceans uh, that do have a pelagic larval phase and then settle onto coral reef environment. So crabs and lobsters are good examples of those. And we find that late-stage larvae of crabs are attracted to coral reef noise. So that's, that's great. But there are lots of crustaceans that live around coral reef environments In an otherwise fairly low-nutrient environment, coral reefs are quite high in nutrients. So to be able to forage on the outskirts of coral reefs without encountering the the millions of mouths that come out at night in every coral polyp and every planktivorous fish, to find some way that you could live near to the coral reef without landing on it would be very useful. And we find that lots of groups of crustaceans that either sit in the seabed during the daytime and come up into the water column at night to feed, or that are constantly in the planktonic realm, are able to detect coral reef noise, but stay away from it. So it becomes a cue cue that's not just used as as an attractive cue, but it relates to the ecology of the animals. So they're doing it to avoid getting eaten, but to get some food. You also found even with coral itself, the the polyps of coral, they've got some sense of hearing. I mean, is is that fair to say that? A year ago, if you'd told me that, I would have thought you were bonkers. And certainly the group that I was working with out in uh, Curacao in the Caribbean, I did think were bonkers. And they had a lot of our acoustic equipment and they were looking at the response of fish to different types of habitat noise. But they were working alongside a team who were collecting spawn from corals. Corals mass produce spawn at certain times of the year. And so they put two and two together and thought, why don't we see if coral larvae respond to sound? And they designed these very elegant small choice chambers that they could put these individual free-swimming coral larvae into and play sounds from one end and look to see whether they migrated within the tubes. So they move very slowly. A coral uh, planulae larva is really just a bag of cells covered in tiny hair cells that they use to swim. But it turns out that if you leave them for a few hours, they'll move towards sound. And that will even counter their natural instinct to move downwards. So if you have a speaker above them, they'll move upwards towards the sound. So it clearly is something that they can detect and respond to. Um, So that, again, could be good for a coral larvae if it's trying to find a particular acoustic condition in which to go and sit and try and uh, cement itself onto the seabed. And it's something that also takes us into a whole new realm of understanding animal hearing or response to noise. I've been trying to avoid during this interview to use the word incredible, but that is incredible. So thank you, Steve. Uh, We're going to hear some more undersea sounds a little later, but let's head south now to some of the world's coldest waters. And scientists are keeping a close eye on the West Antarctic ice sheet. If it melts, we're in trouble from the resulting rise in sea level. But how vulnerable is it? David Barnes from the British Antarctic Survey has been trying to find out. David studies marine creatures called bryozoans, which, like coral, form colonies, as he showed me. 
What we're looking at is a small rock that's been collected from the continental shelf of the Weddell Sea. And these small rocks are, are oases for life that encrusts other substrates. And it's, it's covered by animals, including bryozoans. Well, let's have a, a look at this. I mean, just first off, before we look down the microscope, it's really sort of half fist size, greyish rock with these white spiral patterns on it. These are the bryozoans. They are. If we looked at them when they were alive, they would be uh, brightly coloured. Lots of nice oranges, browns, uh, greens, yellows. But when they dry out, they go white. And if you look to them under the microscope, as we're about to do, you can see that these are fighting each other and, and we're looking at an, an ancient battleground. An ancient battleground. OK, let's have a, have a look through the, the microscope here. Just adjust that. When they're on the rock, they look like someone's drawn spirals. But when you look under the microscope, they're very much three-dimensional, almost like bubble wrap. And where we're looking, there's one spiral set. This is a colony, really, of animals. And another set, they're they're meeting. The spiral is formed by them growing modules out. So they start at a a pinpoint, and one little module settles, called a zooid. And they're like corals in miniature. So they're going to grow up a vast sort of empire of lots and lots of these identical modules. But eventually they'll run out of space, and they'll meet another set of modules that are growing. And it's like two armies that have met each other on a battleground. And then they will start to either fight or give up because they're too evenly matched. Or perhaps even, if they're very, very closely related in the same species, they'll fuse together to form a giant sort of superorganism. Now, you went looking for these around the coast of Antarctica. What did you find? What surprised you? What we wanted to look at was all the, the different species that lived on this stone. So it's a bit like going through a wood and looking for all the different bird species that live in the wood. And we found that if we looked at all of the suites of species that lived in a particular site, in a particular area, and scaling up to a whole sea, the Weddell Sea, we wanted to try and see where was that most similar to. Now, logically, you would expect it to be most similar to the areas nearby. These animals find it hard to get around. And if we look at any other area, we would expect the suite of species to, again, be most similar to those nearby. And to some extent, that's what we found, but with one big exception. And that was? And that was the Weddell and the Ross Seas. These seas are a long way apart. They're separated by one of the three big lumps of ice that exist on the planet, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. And we don't know how stable that has been in Earth's past, but we need to know because it could be crucial for sea level rise. OK, so you found near-identical species, what, thousands of, of miles apart, on opposite sides of this ice shelf. What we have found is that overall, the suite of species in the Weddell Sea is very, very similar to the Ross Sea. Now, there are other places that are similar, like the top of the Antarctic Peninsula and the islands off that peninsula. They're close together. They have similar ecological conditions. And there has perhaps been areas where the ice didn't touch during the last ice age, so they they could have survived in situ. So those being similar is not a big surprise. But the fact that these two areas that are maybe 1,500 miles apart, separated by this massive block of ice, was a real surprise. And it tells us that at some point, those have been recently connected. So what's the significance then of these two seas 
thousands of miles apart being connected, of there being no ice there. So if we want to understand how our planet is going to respond to the warming that's going on at the moment, which is fairly unprecedented in the last 30 million years, we need to know how ice sheets have responded to climate in the past. We, we can only project the future, but we actually have data on the past. So we can go back and look at how each of the three big ice sheets has responded to past temperatures that we have a very good record of through ice cores and, and sediment cores. So if we look at each of those, the East Antarctic ice sheet, the biggest by far, is very, very stable. The other two we aren't quite so sure on, and a lot of attention is focused on Greenland. But if we're right, it might mean that the West Antarctic ice sheet is the least stable of those three and the most important to projected sea level rise with our temperatures. And so getting an idea of where and when that collapsed becomes very, very important. And, for example, the last interglacial was a very brief one that was very warm, and that's like our current time now brief but warm and so if it did collapse in the last interglacial that means that all of our previous thoughts were wrong that it it was it was too brief for the ice to collapse well if it wasn't then that's an important look forward to our immediate future he said ominously David Barnes from the British Antarctic Survey. This is the Planet Earth podcast, and I'm joined by Tamara Jones from our host website, Planet Earth Online. I should stop saying host website. Sounds a bit like we're some sort of parasite. Um, You're going to continue our undersea theme because there's a, a story on the site about new research on whale communication. Well, sperm whales don't communicate with each other by singing like humpback whales do. Instead, they use these um, really strange clicking sounds. And before this lot of research from the University of St. Andrews, researchers thought that individual sperm whales might have their own unique patterned click that that would be used to identify itself to the rest of its pod. But it turns out that a whole pod of whales share a group of patterned clicks. And there's also this this other click, but it's very subtle difference. That's right. They found that a mother that had just recently given birth to a calf used a slightly subtly different type of click. I mean, they they had to really analyse this to find the difference and be difficult for you and I to tell the difference. But it turns out that they think that what's happening is that she has to use a different set of clicks to communicate with her calf so that he or she can find her. And if you want to hear those clicking sounds again, you can go to the Planet Earth online website where you can also find a story about leatherback turtles. Yeah, well, everybody loves leatherback turtles, don't they? And scientists always knew that leatherback turtles swim pretty far, but uh, this new research shows that they swim actually really, really far. And they found that a colony of leatherback turtles in Gabon in West Africa, they can swim up to 4,700 miles right down to the coast of South America. And they do this to find places to feed. But they, they can also swim down to South, America, South Africa rather, and the Mid-Atlantic. OK, so they can, they can swim far, but there's an implication about this. And it's tied to the alarming decline in, in these species. Well, exactly. What the concern is, is that these leatherback turtles, the places they go to feed are exactly the same as where the commercial fishing boats go. So the concern is that they're going to get caught up in these huge nets. And the problem with that is that, for example, in the, in the Pacific, leatherback turtle populations have plummeted by a massive 98% over the last 30 years. 
And if the same thing happens in, in the Atlantic, then clearly that's a major problem because these, these creatures are in, uh, critically endangered. So if they're, they're, they're feeding in the same places as these fishing boats, then we, we need to be doing something to stop that. Thanks, Tamara. As well as Planet Earth Online, we're also on Facebook, where you can see a beautiful picture of ice-encrusted trees in Canada, taken by Mel Sandels, a scientist studying the properties of snow. Mel's taken an audio recorder with her and will be featuring her experiences of working in the Arctic winter in the coming weeks here on the Planet Earth podcast. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, Sophie Hollis from this laboratory at the University of Bristol will be recording an audio diary in French Polynesia. Do you want to swap with Mel? No, I think I'd much prefer the warm side of the world with French Polynesia. Now, we talked earlier about the importance of sound to fish. You're looking at the the human influence on these sounds on, on the reef. Exactly. So I'm really focusing on what noise that humans are making in the water and how this might be affecting fish. So I've just been out there and looking at adult damselfish, the changes in behaviour that they go through um, when a boat drives past them. And there's many aspects of a, a boat going past that could be disturbing. There's the movement, but the sound is such an important aspect and travels so far and so well under the water that that's actually one of the biggest aspects that might be really disturbing to them. You've also got a pretty shocking sound here, and this is fishing using dynamite. This recording was of some people dynamite fishing so far away that they couldn't actually be seen. They were somewhere over the horizon. But in this recording, you can hear the reef, but then you hear this humongous explosion. And then you hear the echo of the sound bouncing between two islands that are actually 10 kilometres apart. So from the speed of this echo, you can really get an idea of how fast the sound is moving underwater. So what are you going to be doing this time? Well, this time I'm going to be looking at larval coral reef fish, particularly right at the settlement stage, so exactly the stage where they're really using sound as this important cue for them to find the habitat that they want to live on. Well, Sophie, we wish you the best of luck in French Polynesia, and we do look forward to hearing your recordings. That's the Planet Earth podcast. All our past editions are available on Planet Earth online, including audio diaries featuring mongooses, geese, and giant leeches. I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.